Good morning to wherever you are joining us from. My name is Barton Seaver. I'm a chef, author, proud father, husband, and resident of the jagged, ragged, delicious coast of Maine, where I'm joining you from today from our little saltwater farm. And wherever it is that you are joining from, I hope that you are safe and sane and sound and sanitized and delicious and living well. So I appreciate you joining me for this uh, open office hours. I know we already got a, a number of great questions in, uh, but any of you joining, please ask any question you can think of. Uh, not even necessarily related to culinary, you know, doesn't have to be, but uh, I will do my best to answer these. Um, I know that a lot of you, well, th there's questions that come in all across the board. And uh, while I know many things, I don't know it all, so I'll try and answer as best I can, but we will always be able to get you somebody on the Ruby team who can get back to you with an answer. So plug in your questions over there on the right-hand side of your screen. If there's a question that's already there that you particularly like or would like to see answered, click the heart button and that'll rotate it up toward voted up to the top to make sure that I see it. Um, let's, what else? Um, yeah. Hey, yeah, Barton Seaver, follow me on Instagram. Check me out. Um, talk a lot about food there. So with the Ruby team, I am the chief educator uh, of the seafood literacy course. That is my specialty is seafood. Uh, I was a chef in many restaurants in Washington, D.C., lived and worked all over the world. So I have some great experience with international cuisines. Uh, but really, seafood is my thing, that and vegetable cuisine. So uh, with that, we're going to dive in, but as you, any of you who've joined us before, and hello, friends, to those who have, uh, you know that I like to start off these sessions uh, by telling something that I am grateful for, because cooking for people, food itself is an act of love, it is an act of kindness, and therefore the very best and most important ingredient in whatever recipe you will ever cook is indeed gratitude, because, well, that's what makes everything work, right? So, what am I grateful for today? Well, uh, I was talking to my father yesterday. I haven't seen him in uh, almost two years and uh, arranged to, a trip for him to come up and join us in Maine to meet his uh, second grandson for the first time and spend a week with us. And so, uh, though I've looked forward to many things uh, throughout this pandemic, uh, I got to say that this one uh, is one of the most emotional and to have that on the calendar and to know he's coming is is just absolutely wonderful so that is lighting my life today and uh yeah i hope that you will take some time to consider what you were grateful for maybe even share it with us drop it in there as a comment i'd love to hear from you okay there we go wasn't that delicious yes it was shall we start off all right from virginia hi friend my husband isn't supposed to eat spinach because of his kidney disease interesting I would like to substitute other greens in recipes. Do you have suggestions for what other greens act more like spinach in recipes? Hmm. That's a very interesting question. So I will not speak to uh, the medical aspects of that because I don't know about substitutions uh, as relate to the kidney function. But in terms of greens that behave like spinach, well, what does spinach do? Well, when raw, what does it have? It has this sort of tannic bite, right? Uh, this slight crunch to it, but also this yielding texture. It's also slightly drying on the palate, right? And you can kind of almost feel how it kind of dries the back of your teeth out in, in a weird way. Uh, it has this really sort of uh, subtle bitterness to it. Uh, in, in that way, spinach does really well with vinaigrettes, with fats, um, you know, things like bacon and smoky paprika oil. It does well with sweet things like a, a sherry vinegar or something like that. So in terms of other greens, I'm just thinking about sort of what role does spinach play in raw dishes. Uh, other greens that do that, uh, I would look to purslane. I would look to, um, which is a, a, a tender herb, but also sort of a thick, crunchy stalk, which is absolutely delicious. I would think about watercress which would be another one that sort of has a lot of those same quality and characteristics to it. Um, and uh, some of the butter crunch lettuces as well that are now being bred, they, they now have a little bit more texture to them, but they also have that soft yielding bite and stand up and give volume. So in a cooked dish, what does spinach do? Uh, well, it basically yields completely, right? When you wilt down spinach, uh, it kind of disappears into a dish, not, not visually, of course, but texturally, it becomes very soft. 
it it doesn't add any chew to a dish. And I'm thinking like, uh, 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 oh jeez, I just made it last week and I can't think of it. Uh, Moresh stew, the Spanish dish that I loved and cooked a lot when I was living over there. It's chickpeas uh, and a whole lot of spices and potatoes stewed down and then a whole several handfuls of spinach added in at the end. And it all just wilts down into this very svelte, velvety addition to it. So what other greens will do that? Uh, very long cooked collards, very long cooked kales will do that. Very long cooked cabbages will do that. And I'm talking by long cooked, I mean like four hours cooking. Um, most recipes that you're doing don't have time for that. So you're going to want to go to some of those softer greens. Uh, don't be afraid to cook with lettuces. You know, if there's a, a romaine, cooks down rather nicely. Uh, you know, some of the escaroles cook down very nicely as well. Um, and that, that might be sort of the, the best direct substitution would be escarole in that it has that same bitterness and that same sort of velvety texture at the end. So I hope that helps. And I, I, when I give answer, I like to sort of talk around about what the ingredient does in a dish so that we can really focus not just on this for that, but really what is, what is its purpose in a dish and how to achieve that. So Virginia, hey, thanks very much for your question. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the love that you were sharing to your husband by cooking for him and making uh, great foods together. So that's awesome. Cool. All right. From Emma H. Hi there. What is the difference between shallot, leek, onion, and green onion? Is there a difference? And why would you use one over the other? That's a great question. Huh. So basic broad answer is, yeah, they're all the same. They, they all perform a similar function. Uh, in many of the dishes that they are used in, in that they add sweetness, they add acidity, they add a real earthiness, um, and they're just a baseline flavor, a foundational flavor upon which other things are able to sing. Uh, whether that's in a stock, whether that's sauteed diced onion or leek, whatever, in a you know, to start a risotto, whether it's in a mirepoix to start a sauce in classic French cuisine, etc. Uh, basically, all of those different onions or alliums uh, perform that same function. Now, that's sort of like saying, yeah, Pinot Noirs are all the same, right? Yeah, because they're all Pinot Noirs and there's some general characteristics to them, but there's also a lot of incredible nuance there, as there is in the allium family. So, onions. You, let's just start with the yellow onion, the Spanish onion. Uh, slight bracing acidity to it, a little bit of bite and spiciness to it, uh, good sweetness, and great texture. Large, it's really typically used as a foundational ingredient, typically sautéed into things, added as a base flavor, or simmered into them to add uh, structure to the flavor. Then you have white onion, you have Vidalia onion, you have the other bulb onions, right? Uh, those all basically provide the same thing with just differing levels of sugar. Vidalia onion, Maui onion, Sweet 100 onions, um, all are sort of bred to be almost like apple-like sweet. Um, and I don't use those very often because I don't think they bring much balance to dishes. So the other bulb onion that I would talk about would be the red onion. And red onions, I think, are different. They are in a category of their own in that, yes, they can be used the same way a yellow onion can, uh, but I don't like to because their color isn't very appetizing. If you were to saute diced red onion as part of a risotto, it would just look like pale black, gray at the end of it. It loses its charming visual appeal. But its flavor is so nuanced and so subtle and so wonderful, and I think the most charismatic of any of the onions, that I use that raw very much, very often, sliced very, very thin. Uh, that's what you would put into diced you know, guacamole, something like that. Uh, but also red onion are incredible on the grill. They pick up sweetness and smoke. Uh, they're also great in a pan, just dry pan, super high heat, singe them, sear them, burn them. And the texture and the flavor that you get out of them is incredible. Leek, leek, the white part of leek really just acts as sort of onion. It adds that foundational flavor because of its lack of color. It blends into basically whatever you're cooking. Uh, but the top, the green part of the onion, is a little bit bolder in flavor. That's the part of the leek that sticks out above the ground and is exposed to sunlight and thus develops chlorophyll. Uh, 
that's used to flavor stocks. It's absolutely delicious there. Uh, wonderful sauces and soups out of it, especially the classic French soup, uh, Vichyssoise, the uh, chilled potato and leek soup, relies heavily on that sort of fertile, verdant flavor of, of the leek green. So that's leeks. Uh, green onion is basically sort of the junior varsity version of all of those things. Uh, really meant to be used raw, uh, sliced thin. It adds texture. It adds a slight bite. But also, you know, it, it's a harmonious ingredient. In Chinese and a lot of Asian cuisines, uh, it is part of that foundational sort of flavor profile of ginger, garlic, and scallion. Uh, so in those cuisines, it is often cooked into the base and sort of the starter of many dishes. Uh, and shallots. Shallots uh, can be used like onions in that in that foundational saute in form, create that baseline flavor, but they're also very elegant in flavor. They're smaller, and so they blend in when used raw a lot better than, say, a larger onion would. Shallots um, are just more elegant than onions and just smaller and, and thus sort of make their way into dishes a little bit easier. So, hey, that's the allium family. There's a lot more to it, including garlic and all sorts of other things, but that's a great question. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, if you're thinking about it on that level, uh, you're really thinking about the foundation of the flavors that you're building and, and why it is you're doing the techniques you are at the beginning of a dish. So great, great thinking on that. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk through it. Thanks, Emma. Awesome. All right, from Nora, what is a neutral flavored plant-based sweetener? Ah, um, neutral flavored. You know, I, this is not uh, this is not my my area of expertise. I actually do not eat sweet foods really, so I, I am not familiar uh, with sweeteners. However, uh, many on our team are, so I'm going to ask that question be sent along to someone on our team, and they will get back to you. Uh, ASAP with an answer to that question. Um, but just from a personal side, and I know it's not neutral, but I've never been to a party where maple syrup wasn't wasn't a welcome guest. You know, it's kind of the best flavor there is in the whole world. And if I'm going to eat sweet, it's going to be maple. So that's my opinion. So we'll get you a better answer soon. Thanks, Nora. All right, from Scott. I'd like to come up with a weekly menu around 2,000 calories per day with multiple options, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. What's the best way to create that? Cool. Good question. Um, and a lot to unpack there. Uh, you know, first and foremost is just, I think, the psychology of it. Uh, so my business partner and, and colleague, Katie, uh, she loves her spreadsheet. She really loves drawing out timelines and, and plugging it in. And then she gets an incredible satisfaction about drawing a little box and then putting a big check in it. She just, she loves that. Me? I don't. I don't. That's not how my brain works. Just not for better or for worse, but just psychologically, that's not how I plan out necessarily. So I think the first thing to do is to figure out, you know, what is that best method of planning um, whether it's just post-it notes on the, on the fridge or whether it's a document and you're you know, sort of working on it in real time, etc. Um, I think another thing to understand is how much variability do you have to build in? Uh, I think a lot of times, and I'm guilty of this myself, is that I have these, these grand plans and visions of things. And then, you know, Sunday night, I've got this whole idea of what the week is going to be. By Tuesday morning, it's like, oh my gosh, I forgot about X. And by X, I mean like you know, going to work or something. <laughs> I mean, it's like something major. And um, just, you know, everything, our, our weeks, everything changes, of course, all the time. So how much variability are you able to build into that? Uh, one of the things that I would suggest is to build on themes uh, so that there is a sense of continuity to things rather than just sort of these static buckets that you're trying to fill or hit every day. Um, I would start with one week, uh, maybe even four days, uh, or maybe as has worked in our family, we do, we would plan for five days or four days, but then give ourselves these free days to place within the week wherever we needed to. Say a Tuesday night happened and Carrie had to stay at work longer or I had to pick up Alden from daycare a little bit earlier, whatever it is that throws the system off, right? There's like, okay, we have this variable built in. 
and once we got better at being at planning, then we were able to really look at, at the week. We were able to look at two weeks, you know, a little bit further out. So you don't need to just, you know, radically succeed at this planning thing on your first time out. It's okay to make some mistakes and to fail a little bit. So uh, please just understand that. So that, that idea of themes, um, you know, pick a cookbook that you really like. Man, Rick Bayless, Mexican cuisine, uh, you know, whatever it is, or, or just a cuisine and say, okay, you know, I, I'm really just going to dig into this uh, this week. And so there's that sense of continuity to things, but also so that, well, if you open up a can of chipotle peppers and adobo sauce, you're, you know you're likely going to use them. If you buy a bunch of cilantro, uh, well, you, you have multiple sort of outlets for it through the week. Um, that's a way to facilitate easier sort of the function of shopping, uh, but also just it eliminates food waste. You, you're not, you don't have to manage more inventory, et cetera. Um, and then the other thing is to look along that theme is what are the bulk helpers that you can go to? So we cook big batches of wild rice in the rice cooker, onion powder, bay leaves, water, and almonds, slivered almonds. And I just simmered off and I have three quarts of it to begin the week. And yesterday, you know what? I needed a quick lunch and I just opened a can of pasta sauce and I put pasta sauce on cold wild rice almond peel off and it was actually really delicious. Uh, but what are those foundational um, aspects of your meal that you can repeat through the week so that you are setting yourself up for success by not requiring a full-on kitchen effort every meal or every day, etc. So, uh, you know, when it comes to those 2000 calories, uh, I, you know, in, in what that measure is there, I, I'm not, that's not something I have much experience with is using sort of menu calculators, uh, to sort of parse out where foods are going to fall or, or what, in what combination throughout a day to, to meet that level. Uh, but I know those, those tools exist. I know they're very helpful. Um, and yeah. Hey, Scott, there was a lot there uh, and a lot I, I left out too. So I, I hope what I did offer helped and uh, I, I admire what you're doing and I'm glad that you're, you're on a path towards it. It sounds, sounds awesome. And I'd love to hear uh, from you what you, what you end up doing. Cool. Thanks. Join us again. Fran, organic cane sugar, which is vegan cane and a great neutral flavor. So there you go. Thanks. Nora, I believe. Nora, oh, that was your question. So Thank you, Fran. I appreciate you chiming in. Fran is uh, the incredible instructor of our vegan desserts course. She's a friend. All right. From Barbara M. Is it necessary to have dull knives sharpened professionally? Can't you do it at home with a water stone? Uh, Barbara, absolutely. You can do it at home. Uh, it's how much elbow grease do you want to put into it? Uh, so absolutely you can do it at home. It's just, uh, sort of the scope and scale of the effort that you're going to need to put into it. Um, a lot of people have a three-sided water stone, so they do have that tough grit, um, the rough grit that will allow for that really deep grind to sort of bring back, uh, decayed and just sort of dilapidated edges there. Uh, but if you don't have multiple grits, uh, you know, if you only have one water stone, you, you might just think about doing it professionally. I mean, there's some really great services where you just put it in, they send you a bag and you put it in the bag and you send it off and it comes back to you in just a couple of days. Um, that's something that I've done, quite honestly. Uh, just in my life, I don't have the time I would love to have to devote to my knives. And uh, every now and then I do just send them off and I say, can, can you just get me back to where this is, where the maintenance is easy? Uh, there's absolutely no shame in that, but, um, so, but can it be done at home? Absolutely, Barbara. And I encourage you to do it. If you got the time, it's a wonderful meditation and, uh, yeah, I enjoy it. I hope you do too. Cheers. All right. Sabina. Hi friend. I buy wild salmon filet and for some reason it always turns dry when I try baking it in the oven. Can you provide a recipe to achieve a moist texture? A moist texture, thanks. Also, a recipe for slow roasting fish. Well, there you go. So, the, your second question answers your first question for me, which is to slow roast it. So, uh, buying wild salmon fillets. Uh, I don't know which type of salmon you're buying, but uh, coho, 
salmon, sockeye salmon, uh, or pink salmon are, are you know, the most commonly available ones. And I imagine sockeye is probably part of uh, your, your choice there. So those are some of the leaner salmon, which they're still very fatty, rich, delicious, healthy fish. Uh, but they're not the exuberantly fatty king salmon or as fatty as the farm salmon fillets can be. So yes, they can tend to dry out. Uh, they're also thinner fillets tend to be. So oftentimes we sort of have this idea in our head of this recipe for salmon and we might think of a fillet like this, but then we're cooking a fillet like this and we don't think uh, that what we really need to do is to turn the heat down. And the reason for that, and the reason why it's dry, is that a four-ounce or five-ounce piece of Atlantic salmon, a farm salmon, is going to be this thick, right? It's going to be a nice little, you know, sort of three-finger cut, whatever it is. The surface area on it is going to be less than the, you know, the ratio of surface area to volume is less. Now, if you have a thinner fish, smaller fish, like a sockeye, well, that same five ounces, four ounces, is going to have a lot more surface area, Right? So it's just going to have more opportunity to dry out. And that's just, there's more of it exposed. There you go. So um, that's part of the reason why the salmon can end up drying out. So what do I do? Uh, this is my testy toaster oven. Anybody who joined me before know how much I like to talk about my toaster oven. I set it to 300 degrees. <coughs> Lightly oil the fish or no. Season it with salt, nothing else. And I just throw it in there at 300. And I just let it sit. And sometimes I cook it directly from frozen, and it turns out beautifully. Does it take a while? Yeah. But I also have time to have a glass of wine and talk to my wife and cook the broccoli and get some brown rice on. And it's okay that dinner isn't stressful, right? Yeah, it's really great that dinner isn't stressful. So that slow roasting approach uh, does wonders. The other way to do it is that if you do want to continue using high heat is to add some moisture to your oven. So... I can't do this necessarily in the toaster oven, it's a little too small, but in the regular oven, uh, just add a little pan of water just beneath it. And what that does is it just humidifies your oven and thus it doesn't draw as much moisture out of the fish just because your environment is moisture. Uh, that is sort of the principle of a lot of great new cooking uh, tools like combi-therm ovens, uh, CVAP ovens, etc., that are moist heat ovens. Um, that preserves that moisture. So that's another way to do it. And in terms of a recipe for slow roasting fish, uh, you really have to develop any, anything you're going to pair with slow roasted fish. Uh, need that You really need to focus on developing the flavor of that thing before you put it in the oven. Because that slow roasting is going to facilitate cooking, not necessarily flavor development. You're not going to wither down tomatoes and get skins charred and simmer down their juices to emulsify with olive oil and garlic that you, you sauteed together. Like, no, you put cherry tomatoes in an oven at 300 degrees, they're going to come out as really kind of just deflated, grumpy cherry tomatoes. And it, there's going to be no charm to it. So for slow roasted recipes, make the sauce separate, really develop that flavor, caramelize some onions, saute some garlic, you know, bring all those bold flavors together, do any reduction that you need, whether it's white wine, whether it's tomatoes, whether it's um, carrot juice or whatever it is, bring that down, fully build that flavor, pair it with the fish, throw it in the oven. So there you go. Hope that helps. Thanks, Sabina. I really appreciate you. All right, from Emma, hi again. In your last live event, you mentioned an infused lemon oil. Yeah, this has gotten a lot of attention. Uh, what brand was it? Also, are all high smoke point oil, cooking oils refined? Um, well, to the smoke point uh, question, I, no. Um, I, actually, I, I actually don't think that extra virgin olive oil has... Uh, I don't know enough about the science on this to, to answer scientifically, but I will say that uh, I have always used extra virgin olive oil as my go-to saute oil for everything. Um, and I've never had an issue with it. And I've never had any off flavors. I've never had any acridness build up in it. So if you're trying to avoid the refined oils, um, cold pressed extra virgin olive oil has always done me well. Um, if you're going to deep fry, certainly it's not worth the expense of, of extra virgin olive oil. 
But I, I believe that I remember seeing an article recently about smoke points and sort of a rethinking of that sort of legacy wisdom that has been passed down through culin through generations of culinarians. So I need to do a little more research into that. Thank you for the providing me the reminder to do so. Um, sorry, again, I can't provide like a pinpoint exact answer other than to offer you my opinion, my experience. And then uh, the oil. So there's a number of different ones, but what you're looking for is agrumato or agrumati. Uh, a G, let's see, it's, it's so shiny. A G R U M A T I or T O, agramato, um, agramati. And for the rest of you, what this is, is this is extra virgin olive oil that during the pressing of the olives, citrus is added to it, whether it's lemon, whether it's blood orange, whether it's grapefruit, etc. Uh, and what this does is it's not just an olive oil that happens to have some lemon flavor, it is like lemon and olives got married and had this wonderful little offspring that they gave to the world and it's incredible and it's just nuanced and balanced and integrated in a way that you would never be able to achieve but for that sort of you know initial pressing. It's just absolutely gorgeous. It's soaringly aromatic and elegant and beautiful and charming and two drops of it will radically alter whatever dish it's part of. Um, so it's a condiment that I keep around uh, because it adds so much with very little effort. Uh, in terms of brands, so this is Asaro Patana, uh, yeah, Asaro Partana. I got this off of an online retailer, Amazon. Uh, but look around, there's a couple of great California brands that are doing this. Uh, o Olive Oil Brands does uh, some really nice ones. Um, but just type it into uh, you know, the internet searches, Agrumato. Uh, or lemon-infused oil, and you will find some great options. Cheers. Thanks. Appreciate it, Emma. Karen, hi. Uh, I'm finding it challenging to use the rolling technique with Santuku knives. Any suggestions? Uh, yes, well, Santuku knives are not, from what I understand, really not. It, it's more of the push-cut technique um, as opposed to the Western style where knives are do have that bevel, and, and so they are meant to, to rock, to be held static in, at the tip and then pushed down <clears throat> uh, for the to slice and sort of the, the food moved under the knife you know, say i had a carrot i'm slicing the carrot like this by moving it rather than moving the knife sentuku knives and many japanese knives single single blade or single bevel knives that's the push cut technique where it's removing the knife from the food from the board and pushing through allowing the tool to do the slicing um how that works in fast action Western kitchen or wherever you are, where you, you need to chop a whole bunch. It's just a difference in, uh, in the technique. Um, I have a set of Japanese knives that I use. Uh, and you know what? I came up with Western knives and, and the rocking technique. And when I'm just cooking dinner for the family, because it's just got to get done, that's what I'm doing. I'm just doing that. But you know what? If I'm having fun and a glass of wine and taking my time to cook dinner and it's the weekend, I'll break out the Japanese knives and I'll practice that technique because it is fun. It makes you present. It just thinks how to think about food a little bit differently. And it just kind of puts you back on the cutting board, which is a nice place to be. Anyway, there you are. Hope that helps. <coughs> Hi there, Catherine. Uh, what's the best way to know if a steel pan is hot enough to add oil for searing? How do you prevent meats from sticking? Does the meat need to be dried even if marinated? Okay, a couple questions there. So, uh, whether the pan is hot enough to add the oil, um, there's this the technique of if you a couple drops of water, then you can just flick it into the pan, um, which can be a little bit dangerous. So, if you're doing it at home, it's fine. If you're in a professional kitchen where there's all sorts of stuff going on like that. Or if you just want to be flinging stuff around, but um, if you drop a bead, if you drop a couple drops of water into the pan, it should bead up and sort of sizzle and dance around the pan, rather than if the pan isn't hot enough, it will basically just hit the pan and and simmer out, right? So that's one way to tell visually. Um, another way to tell visually is is just to be honest, is is instinct, uh, intuition, and just practice. Um, knowing your burners that, you know, if you have the, if you're cooking in the same place all the time, 
uh, at home or you know we're in the same burner at work, uh, you begin to have a feel for it. Uh, with cast steel pans, uh, you can see that the metal begins to turn a little bit bluish, uh, even maybe a little bit whitish, uh, a gray sort of cast to it. Um, so there also are these other visual cues. I don't think you ever want to get a pan to the point where the pan itself is smoking, where it's just releasing whatever it is that's on there. It's just, mm. There's no technique that I've ever needed to use that needed pan that hot. Maybe a little whisper of it, but like, you're not cooking the pan. You're using the pan to cook some food, right? So just get it that hot. The other thing to do is just to <coughs> add just a little bit of oil to it. Does the oil immediately sort of dance and shimmer? Um, yeah, there you go. So uh, the how do you prevent meat from sticking? Does the meat need to be dried even if marinated? So if you're marinating something, I, I would actually tend not to marinate things that I am going to saute for the reason that marinating is the often the process of adding moisture and moisture is the antithesis of what you're trying to achieve in the saute pan with the oil and with the heat, which is a transference of heat, which is a change of texture. It is a development of flavor and any moisture present is going to inhibit slow that process. Now on a regular piece of salmon or a steak, the natural moisture that's already there, you know, will simmer off quickly enough that you will get that caramel, uh, that caramelization, the browning, the color and flavor development. Any added moisture uh, can slow that down to the point where you risk overcooking the meat before you get the desired texture or color. So I don't marinate things that I am going to sear or saute. Uh, I might do a spice rub on them, certainly, and you can add flavors to them, but adding moisture to them, no. Now, in oil-based or fat-based marinade, absolutely, sure. Um, that's, that's not going to impede that. So in terms of drying uh, meat, I always pre-season meat, all, all fish, 20 minutes at least, if not a day ahead of cooking. Um, that draws some moisture out to the surface. Salt is a humectant and draws moisture towards itself. So right, if, if there's a particular a lot amount of moisture on it on the fillet, I can see it and it's glistening and maybe the moisture is even beating up. Yeah, I'll just take a towel and just blot it. And that's it. You're not trying to smash it down. You're not trying to punish it. You're not trying to dry it off like a baby coming out of the bath. It's just like pat it dry, put it in. There you go. And the technique that I also use to prevent sticking is when I put anything in the pan or in the oil. I have the pan moving pretty much when I put the fish in or the meat. Uh, and what that does is it just allows that oil to circulate a little bit underneath the fish or the meat until it cauterizes, until those proteins cook enough to the point where if you just then leave it be, it's not going to stick. Um, there you go. Every chef has many methods to it, uh, but there you are. Hope that helps. All right. Uh, Samantha, what's the best combo for dark chocolate and salty sweet taste? Wow. Um, that's kind of subjective because it can go in so many different directions. I would say my favorite would be sort of a savory, uh, not too fiery chili pepper, like a chili de arbol or a, a merken chile from the country of Chile and cuisine down there. That's a particular favorite of mine. I love a little bit of spice, uh, you know, as you find in Mexican moles, uh, which feature chocolate as part of them. Thank you. UPS guy. Um, other ones, uh, ginger is a really nice one. Ginger being both a spice that, you know, can go savory or sweet. Uh, but when used well, um, you know, and not bolstered by the sweetness of the chocolate, but rather a bittersweet, uh, can be very nice. Um, certainly nuts, uh, roasted nuts, toasted peanuts, etc. Um, I like. Um, yeah. So there you go. Those are some of my favorites, but uh, everybody's going to have their own. Maybe Fran, if you're still on, you can uh, maybe you could dive in with your favorites. So, All right, Marie. I'm in the market for new stainless steel frying pan. What do you recommend that's not super expensive but still good quality? What do you know about made-in cookware products? 
Uh, what I know about made in cookware products is what I've seen on Instagram ads, which uh, make them look really, really good, right? Because the company itself is making ads to make themselves look good, right? Um, I've seen that some very big name and very reputable chefs have also endorsed them uh, and used them and many people that I, that I trust. So, you know, all I can say is I, I've heard really good things and they look nice, uh, which is important because oftentimes they're just on display in your house, uh, sort of out and they, you look at them all the time. So aesthetic is a big part of it for me. Um, you know, all clad is a standard. Uh, they're still around and still popular. And well, that's because for a reason, because the good pans that last, uh, Misen makes some, some nice pans. Um, I have, I have all copper pans. Uh, it has been long a goal in my life to have copper pans and I saved up for like five years and finally got the set that I, I really wanted. Um, and I'm very grateful for that and I'm happy about it. Uh, but stainless steel, what you, what you want to look for is something with some thickness to it. Uh, it is the pan that cooks the food, right? So you want the pan itself to be a tool, not just a metal cup in which the food sits and you try and force heat up through it. No, you want the pan itself to have some character. You want it to hold some heat. You want it to be able to, to read it. You want it to really work be able to work with the fire not just sort of sit on top of it so something with some thickness to it and that's going to up the price of it it's also going to up the durability of it um, and just tend to be higher quality so uh, but i also know that you can get really great pans now for forty dollars or so um, but in addition to a stainless steel pan i would also uh, urge you to look at cast steel pans uh, black steel um, those are equally as useful, i found, uh, are a little bit easier to manage and to clean, uh, maintain their aesthetic a little bit better as well, uh, and tend to be a little bit cheaper. Um, so there you go. Hey, let us know what you end up choosing and what you think of it. Hey, thanks for the question. All right, Elena, I'm going to open my vegan, organic, gluten-free, soy-free cafe and bakery in New York, and I would like to learn to make good cream for bakery, for macaroons, for cookies and sandwiches. Well, hey, congratulations to you. That's awesome that you're following that dream. I imagine it's, it's, it's been a while in the making, uh, in your head at least, in your heart. So we, good for you for getting there. Um, we'd like to learn to make good cream for the bakery, macaroons and cookies and sandwiches. So again, that is going to be the expertise of the expert herself, Chef Fran, so of our vegan desserts course. So I might ask that if... She could, you could be in touch with her, uh, maybe reach out and uh, check out her course. But uh, hey, from all of us at Ruby, we wish you the very best of success. Thanks for joining us today. If you haven't joined us already in, in one of the courses, but we're here to support you and to cheer you on. So all the best to you. All right, from Daniel. Hi, friend. <coughs> Is there a cooking method that allows me to retain the color of a yellow or pink oyster mushroom? What a, what, a, what a nuanced, detailed question that is. That's awesome. Uh, one that I have never thought of before. Uh, and not one that I, yeah, I've never thought of it before. And I'm going to say the answer to that is, um, yeah. Yeah, of course. Poach them. Uh, slowly roast them. But I, I would say poaching them maybe is, is probably the better way. Uh, I really love a chilled or room temperature marinated mushroom, uh, whether it's just a button mushroom or a, a king oyster, pink oyster mushroom, uh, a nice broth, cuisson, whether it's mustard seed, black peppercorns, bay leaves, um, some ginger, whatever, a, a good slug of vinegar and a little bit of water, bring it to a boil, add some salt, throw your raw mushrooms in and just let them cool down. So it fully cooks them. So you end up with that flavor development. You don't end up with a caramelization, obviously, but you end up with this wonderful garnish slash side dish, which are these chilled marinated mushrooms. Now those can then be used to throw into a dish at the end, say you're sauteing zucchini and you want that yellow, beautiful color of the yellow oyster mushroom, which has been preserved in the fully cooked state in the poached mushrooms. So now you don't have to saute them in and lose that color. Uh, rather, you can basically just throw them in right at the very end, let the 
the sort of ambient heat of the dish warm them through, and you're not dealing with that color loss, which I think really happens more with rising of temperature more so and more so than um, you know the higher the temperature, the more cooking loss there is, the color loss there is. So, hey, what an interesting question. So I, I hope that helps and uh, very cool. And I love that you're cooking with yellow and pink oyster mushrooms enough that this is this is on your mind and part of your life. That's that's awesome. That, that makes me happy. Cool. All right, from Zilika. Hi. Nice to have you join us. Hi, friend. To make dried fruit paste, I thought about the fresh mangoes that I have. May I have fresh mango paste instead of dried mango paste? Yes, I don't see why not. So, uh, you know, in French cuisine, that would probably be more called a coulis uh, than a paste. Uh, the advantage to using dried mangoes is that you have total control over the moisture content of the paste uh, so that you can truly make it a paste. If you just take a raw mango fresh and throw it in a blender, you don't end up with paste, you end up with puree. So it's that need to desiccate or to draw out that moisture. Um, that's really the key factor there in what is really, I think, just a textural or consistency difference here. Uh, in terms of the flavor, you're obviously going to get a much more concentrated, different, deeper, richer flavor from the dried. Um, and so in whatever recipe you're using it in, uh, you know, be sure to account for that that fresh mangoes are going to bring more acidity to them. They're going to bring just well, more moisture as well. So in the other ingredients, you just need to think about that and, and how to account for that uh, and make measure. So, hey, Julika, I really appreciate the question. I hope that helps. Cool. From Pilar, what are my thoughts on farmed fish? I got lots of them. And I'm glad that you are asking, Pilar. Thank you for the question. Um, so, Pilar, I think we'll probably send, uh, you know what, I've got a number of articles that I'll send over to you, um, or Pilar, if you could reach out to me at barton at ruby.com, I'd be happy to send you uh, a number of articles that I've written, um, one for James Beard Foundation, uh, another one for a publication called The Coastal Table, and if you just Google my name along with that, uh, those articles will pop right up. Uh, they're pretty easily found. So the Coastal Table, as well as for James Beard Foundation, I've got two lengthy articles on that, as well as for Food and Wine Pro. Um, so those three publications I've written extensive articles on my thoughts on farm fish. But the uh, to, to give a live answer uh, without going into too much detail is uh, when I was first coming up and, and sustainable seafood is my whole bend and delicious seafood is my whole career, uh, I was very much anti-farmed seafood uh, because it had, well, it had earned a bad reputation. Um, but then the industry and leaders in the industry began to prove and to show and to innovate that this is a food production method that uh, can yield sustainable results, can yield economically and community supportive results, and can yield delicious results. Um, and to the point now where aquaculture, uh, though it started off making a lot of mistakes, um, it is atoned for a lot of those. And there's still a lot of very bad aquaculture out there that's producing not great fish in not great environmental ways and abusing workers, et cetera. I mean, there's some really horrific stuff out there. But there's also some stuff that is absolutely inspirational, that is visionary, that is delicious. Uh, so much so that the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization has listed aquaculture, the farming of fish and shellfish, as a principal foundation of sustainable development goals, both number 12 and 14. Uh, aquaculture is the fastest growing food system on the planet. Um, we now eat more farmed fish on this planet than we do wild capture fish, and that number is only going to increase, and I think that's a good thing. I am very much pro-sustainable wild fisheries. I am very much pro-sustainable farmed seafood. Uh, there's a huge amount of nuance in this, uh, so I, I urge you to go check out those articles. Again, Food and Wine Pro, James Beard Foundation, and The Coastal Table, three different publications in which you Google my name, and you'll find that article. Um, but, uh, yeah, the other thing to say is that aquaculture as a global industry 
began only 50, 55 years ago. I mean, we didn't have computers then, right? I mean, a computer the size of the Pentagon couldn't do what my iPhone can, right? Industries evolve so rapidly. And when we think that aquaculture, though its existence is thousands of years old as a commercial industry to feed people on a mass scale, it's only 50 years old. Give the industry some, t- some leeway, allow it to say, wow, yeah, you're starting from nothing and we've gotten very far since then. Um, anyway, again, a lot to unpack, but you literally asked the question that is, um, well, it's basically my entire career right now. It's what I do all day, every day is evangelize about seafood, its benefits, um, it, where it needs to improve, and how it's going to get there and why we should all be eating more of it. So, hey, Pilar, thanks so much for your question. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, oh, looks at that. Uh, Patrick, my dear friend and colleague at Ruby. Uh, just there at the top of the question queue is posted the James Beard article. Um, but again, also, please do check out those other two, Coastal Table and Food and Wine Pro. From Sharon. Hi, friend. Thanks for joining again. I got some great Dijon mustard. Want to make salad dressings with it. What are your favorite ways to flavor it up for dressings? <coughs> I'm going to say, you know what, Sharon? I, I, don't, I don't like to flavor it up. Uh, because great Dijon mustard is just that. It's great. Um, it doesn't It doesn't need more. Um, I think that great quality mustard is itself its own its own sort of lead role, uh, especially in a salad dressing. So I would argue that if you've got really great quality stuff, just pair it with good quality vinegar. I think that's the key there. If you have great quality mustard and then you use crappy quality vinegar, you just downgraded your, your mustard. Uh, neutral oils are best. You know, olive oil and a great quality Dijon, yes, is a good, sure, extra virgin. You don't need to go there. It just kind of creates unnecessary volume of flavor. Just like, hey, I'm so flavorful, volume. Uh, you don't, it's not bad, it's just you don't need it. Uh, the subtlety of that stone ground mustard, ooh, it's so delicious. Um, so a neutral oil, just like a, a non-extra virgin olive oil or a, just a, a salad oil is the best way to go. But I do like, if you're doing a, a fine ground Dijon, I do like to add very finely diced shallots. Shallots, raw shallots and mustard are, are perfect together. And what I really like also is that the shallots offer these little pops of texture. Um, and that is something that it's... There's something magical about that and just the way mustard just stays interesting with, with shallots. Um, so, but, uh, you know, other ways to think about it is uh, certainly you can do honey. You can do maple syrup. Play around with Darius citrus uh, juices. Lime and mustard is surprisingly really good uh, because lime brings so much sweetness uh, that it balances really well. Um, but, uh yeah, there you go, Sharon. Hey, I hope that helps. All right. Um, from Fasekin. Hi, Fasekin X. I hope I got that pronunciation right. What vinegar do you always use uh, f- to mix for vinaigrette? Are there different kinds of vinegars? Oh, yes. Yes, there are. All right. In my kitchen, I've got my go-to. Uh, one of my go-tos, which I really like, is sherry vinegar. Um a good sherry vinegar should cost a little bit of money, but it is so potent, it is so strong that you're not going to use a lot of it. And by cost a little bit of money, I don't mean like balsamic. Um, I think this bottle, $17 or something like that. It's absolutely worth it. So sherry vinegar has this really nutty, really woodsy, um, woody uh, flavor to it from the aged wine that it's made from. Uh highly potent in its acidity. So a little bit, so you can add the acidity that you need to get the right balance without adding this sort of volume of flavor that you then have to counteract. So sherry vinegar specific, especially good with, uh, with vegetables. So lettuces are, are very delicate. I think they need, they typically need a, a, a softer vinegar, but if you're doing a carrot salad uh, with shredded carrots on the box grater, if you're doing, celery root salad, if you're doing roasted root vegetable salads, if you're doing tomato salads, sherry vinegar, that's my jam. Uh, other things that I've got, I've got a, I make my own, that's my vanilla that I make, uh, but I make my own vinegars. So I've got a little 
20 liter oak barrel that, uh, you know, when I don't finish a bottle of wine, just the rest of it goes in there with a little bit of water. And over the course of many years, I've just built up this Solera system that I keep adding some in and taking some out. So I've got a red wine vinegar that I, I just make. I started it off with a native yeast culture and it just mm-hmm. keeps living. It's about 11, 10 years old now. Um, and then what I do with this is because I have enough of it to play around with, when it's strawberry season, I'll just put a whole lot of strawberries in a bottle and make some strawberry vinegar. And hey, what a fun thing to do. And you don't need to have your own vinegar factory like I do in order to do this. You know, go buy one bottle of really good red wine vinegar and put it in a couple of ball jars with some different fruit. Put a peach in one, put a couple of stalks of rosemary in another, um, you know, put some strawberries in one or raspberries, and you'll end up with, you know, just some really cool, fun options. Uh, other vinegars, I do have a balsamic. I tend to use very little balsamic. Uh, is it delicious? Yes, absolutely. Is it blunt? I tend to think so. Uh, yes, it can be incredible. I mean, it, it, it's great quality balsamic can be as elegant and, and unique of a vinegar there is. But most of the time, the way most cooks use it in most dishes, what it provides is just a little bit of acid. And really, it's there for the sweetness, uh, not for its subtlety. So I tend not to use a whole lot of balsamic. Um, and when I do, it's on melon. Uh, it's on prosciutto, it's things like that. Um, other vinegars that I've got, I've got an aged sherry vinegar. Um, so there you go. Thanks for the question. Appreciate it. From Darlene. Hi there. In steaming a variety of greens, better results are needed to use with balsamic vinegar to obtain nitric oxide benefits. Um, Things like spinach are like mushrooms and other greens like collard greens are still very tough after seven. Uh, Okay. So I believe that this is a a comment to one of the first questions that we're asking sort of substitutes for spinach there. Um, So yeah, it depends all on the cooking time. It's sort of where you're going to get to with the texture. uh, And as you're talking about with the nutritional uh, sort of development there, uh, which you you seem to have a, a good beat on more so than I do. So uh, thank you for sending that in. I appreciate it. All right. When making chicken marsala, what stage of the cooking process is it appropriate to add mushrooms to the sauce? Would you saute the mushrooms in a separate pan or add them after you deglaze the sauce? Huh. Catherine. Hi, Catherine. I nice see you. <clears throat> so I would saute the mushrooms in the same pan because you're going to get some flavor development out of that. You're going to get that fond, uh, those little bits stuck to the pan. So I would saute the mushrooms and then remove them from the pan. Just keep them on the side, uh, saute your chicken, add your marsala. And as soon as the, the alcohol is kind of cooked off the marsala, throw your mushrooms back in. And that might not be the technical way to do it, but um, what I like uh, about the mushrooms in chicken marsala is that they do have some of that flavor development, that coloration. Um, I don't just like a simmered mushroom flavor uh, in that because I think it just doesn't bring it into its full balance and beauty. <clears throat> so very quick, very, very high heat saute, very low oil, just to get a little bit of color, uh, just to change the flavor a little bit of the diced mushroom, remove them from the pan. And the reason why I say don't put them in the pan with the, hold on. My 10-month-old my ten son just walked through, and I just want to smile at him. Hey, buddy. Okay, I'll see you later. Oh, my God, he's smiling. All right, love him. Okay, uh, back to mushrooms. Um, so mushrooms absorb a lot of whatever liquid that they're, they're in. So if you are cooking the marsala and the alcohol hasn't cooked off yet, the mushrooms can tend to end up being these little booze bombs a little bit, uh, just it, sort of a different level of, of booziness that I just find can be a little bit distracting um, because you have this wonderfully reduced sauce, but then you have these little bites of it. And that can be kind of fun, um, but I would say cook off the booze, add the mushrooms, add your cream if you're using it or whatever uh, sort of mounting, uh, you know, finishing ingredient you have. Add your herbs. There you go. Enjoy. Delicious. Thanks, Catherine. <clears throat> From Marion. Hi, friend. Just completed the secret literacy course and loved it. Well, thank you for saying so. I'm glad you learned so much. 
Current obsession is cooking in papillote. What's your favorite fish and accompanying ingredients for in papillote preparation? Awesome. Well, thank you for the confidence. I appreciate you joining us in the course. Uh, so for those <coughs> who don't know, en papillote is uh, cooking in parchment is, uh, is what the term refers to. And it's basically, well, you put a bunch of delicious things together and fold it into an envelope uh, so that all the steam and all the juices and everything stays within this beautiful parchment that kind of fluffs up like a balloon as it steams. Uh, and then it's traditionally cut open table side and whew, this big sort of raft of steam comes out of it, flavorful, aromatic, blah, 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 everything's cooked together. Oh, you know, what a dreamy dish, right? It's awesome. It takes a little bit of work ahead of time, but it takes no work on the back end. <coughs> so the fish that are traditionally used in papillote, salmon, flounder, uh, John Dory, which is a pretty rare, somewhat unique fish, um, tend to be in there. So subtle fishes with flavor, with textures that are very uh, soft and flaky yielding. Um, you would not want to cook a piece of swordfish or tuna in papillote. Uh, you just wouldn't get, the texture wouldn't be great. Uh, but things like black bass, black sea bass is also really, really wonderful. That nuanced, delicate texture fish. Uh, if you're in New England, Marion, uh, I really like hake, uh, a member of the cod family that Traditionally, it doesn't make it far out of New England, but that's a really, really great one. Uh, so the keys to fish for in papillote are, I, I typically do not cook any fish with its skin on in steaming or in papillote preparations because steaming just doesn't break down the, the tissues in skin and it ends up just being kind of gelatinous and uh, not a really pleasing texture. So you want something that you can take the skin off of and still have a, a good filet of. John Dory. Uh, is actually my very favorite fish for en papillote. And if you've never seen a John Dory before, uh, hey, everybody, check it out. Go Google John, J-O-H-N-D-O-R-R-Y, fish. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's weird. It's real weird. And then Google a picture of its mouth open. It gets even weirder. Yeah. It's also called St. Peter's fish because... Uh, got a really big black spot on the side of its broad silver body it's basically like a flounder that swims upright and that's a flat fish but uh this big black spot is said to be the devil's thumbprint when he picked up the fish out of the river and, and he burned it so there you go lots of fish in the bible lots of lots of fish anyway so there you go and in terms of flavor prep uh, flavor pairings i really 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 like uh fennel all things fennel anise pastis um in that it's both subtle, but also it just has a, a, a beautiful presence right off the bat. It steams really well. So fennel, thinly shaved, the vegetable underneath as a bed, uh, and those vegetables soften and cook in the fish juices. And then, um, let's see, uh, two, two of the alcohols that I keep next to the stove because, A, I like to drink them, and because they cook really well, Herbsant. Uh, Legendary spirit from New Orleans, uh, essential in the cocktail there called the Sazerac. It's used as a wash in the glass. Heavy anise flavor, absolutely delicious. Wonderful green chartreuse like uh, color to it, especially when you pour it over ice. Wonderful, delicious, high proof. Uh, the other is Pernod, the classic uh, anise flavored liqueur, um, that being Parisian. So just a few drops of that over top, and I really like it with butter. Those flavors really match well with butter rather than with olive oil, which kind of draws out a, a grassier, greener flavor. So that's my uh, sort of favorite accompanying ingredients. But I also like to put carrots in, very thinly shaved, shredded carrots, because I found that in papillote is better when there's something sweet in there. Uh, it just steamed flavors tend to, well, they become more elegant, but they lose their sort of bravado in a way. Uh, that's not to say that they get weaker or they get any less. They just, they just mature in a really wonderful way. And I found that sweetness is often lacking in that. Um, and that sweetness, I mean, minor forms of sweetness, like carrots, uh, vegetable sweetness, <coughs> can really bring everything back into a wonderful focus. Uh, I also put raisins in, in there. You don't want more than one raisin every bite, every other bite. Uh, you're not trying to make something sweet, but just these little punctuations of beautiful sweet things can really, really add a whole lot. Hey, Marion, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Cheers. All right, from 
Dahisha, hi friend, certified health and wellness coach would like some advice on how to provide healthy meals to my clients and make a profit. Well, that's a lot of restaurants struggle with that. Uh, don't know if you should get a food truck, do catering meal prep, or become personal chef for clients. Um, well, all four of those, and by the way, awesome. Good for you uh, for all that you're doing to bring wellness and, and vitality to people in your community. That's such an incredible, important thing. It's noble work. So thank you for, for loving your community and bringing kindness. Um, <clears throat> It really, it's hard to answer there. Um, You know, opening a restaurant is uh, very expensive because you have brick and mortar. You have a place to pay for and people to to man it. Um, Catering, you know, depending on where you can do it from, uh, ghost kitchens, community kitchens are now popping up that are making that uh, very feasible. Um, You know, where you're providing the legal cover and all the licensing, et cetera, so that you can make sure you're operating within the scope of, of the law and health standards. Um, you know, that meal prep idea is is also, I think, very sexy just because it also, you're not just delivering a meal, you're delivering knowledge. Uh, you're encouraging the learning. Uh, just as with health and wellness, you're encouraging good exercise habits, good form, <clears throat> you know, good sort of just life outlook, et cetera. The same thing of teaching the skill of, self-sustain self-sustaining self-love through cooking is very important so that idea of meal prep of here is here's your start you go finish it you feel uh you know invested in the process as well and you feel the result and the pride of having cooked it i've always found that that's a big part of health and wellness is is a sense of agency of ownership like i oh i am in control of my health and wellness therefore it is mine to win, it is mine to achieve. So, uh, you know, I very much like that approach to it, just for those psychological reasons. And you know, private chef, personal chef, um, it, it all depends on who your who your clients are. Uh, so, very different business models, all with the same purpose there. Um, so, I can't I can't necessarily say which way to go, especially without a, a lot more information there. But um, yeah, you know, the National Restaurant Association has a lot of great resources on this, as well as the American Culinary Federation, so ACF. Uh, they have a lot of information for chefs uh, who are considering exactly what you are uh, in this question. So just sort of the ins and outs, the do's and don'ts, the, hey, what's a, what's a real day in the life of a blank like? Uh, they've got a lot of testimonials and a lot of great community uh you know, testimonials there. So check out those resources. Hey, I wish you all the best. And uh, Jahisha, again, thanks for what you're doing for your community. Appreciate you. From Levon, hi. Levon, we can expect, what can we expect? We finished the course earlier than expected. Uh, pat on the back and pride. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not sure from a technical standpoint uh, from the Ruby team, if there, there is anything to expect, but um, yeah, it is uh, it is go at your own pace. So if you are so motivated and have the time, go rock it. Yeah. What an awesome question. Appreciate it. I, I love people that just dive into things. Good for you. Hey, thanks for being part of the Ruby family, Yvonne. We appreciate you. From Teresa, I have a wheat and allergy and uh, wheat allergy and intolerance. We'll be able to navigate this, this course around this. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I'm not exactly sure which course you're, you're referring to, uh, but certainly there is a deeply seated and embedded knowledge around that um, within the Ruby team. So please, if there is any particular uh, you know, assignment or uh, project that you're, you know, uh, segment that you're working on where you're having trouble with it, just reach out to your instructor and absolutely there is a workaround uh, that doesn't diminish the educational outcome of it. So We'll always work with you to find what works for you. Um, but also, you know, that uh, gluten-free is, is such a, a major part of modern cuisine now uh, because so many people uh, are demanding that, are choosing that. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it's more and more so just sort of part of the normal operation uh, of kitchens. So um, it's a fluency we should all be glad to learn and have. So, hey. I appreciate your question. I hope that you really enjoy your journey with Ruby and please do reach out because we are here for you, Teresa. We will. All right, and from Pilar, 
Hi again. I'm grateful to be here, she says. I appreciate your energy and blessings. Well, thank you. And what a nice way to end this conversation today. Hey, I appreciate all of you. I appreciate you being part of the Ruby family. I appreciate that you cook, care, and love others. So you cook for and care for others and that you love them. Let me just word that correctly. So be well. Join us again. Follow me on Instagram at Barton Seaver. Check, uh, send me an email at uh, barton at ruby.com with any other questions. Take good care, friends. Bye now.